following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Tales from the association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horwardell, and my guest today is former Iowa star turned NBA center turned author, AC Earl. AC, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invite. Absolutely. So let's uh let's start where your journey starts. You're back at Moline High School in Illinois. Strong career. What was the college recruiting process like for you? Um it was kind of low-key, and it picked up because of my AAU participation. So mm-hmm. at first, I just had, uh, I think I had Coastal Carolina and Creighton, which were kind of like mid-majors. Uh, Iowa was kind of in, but they really weren't sure. And then after I started doing AAU and I did the Nike camp, uh, the Nike ABC camp with Sonny McCarroll and mm-hmm. Mac Irvin, that's when a lot of other schools got in. So Illinois got in, Iowa was in strongly, Michigan State, Kansas, and USC. You're talking about AAU. I think that's very polarizing in terms of the basketball community right now. What do you think about AAU? Is it good for basketball? Is it bad for basketball? Somewhere in between? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the part of the issue is, you know, the term AAU is – is a very loosely used term mm-hmm. and I get, you know, use it because it's the easiest way to describe, uh, travel team basketball. But a lot of a lot of, a lot of players are not a caliber. They're maybe travel team caliber. I think travel team basketball, which is, you know, teams just go on in tournaments and they play every weekend or every other weekend. Mm-hmm. I think that can be beneficial and my kids do it and have done it. Uh, but, you know, traveling around at all expenses, you know, and time commitment and playing uh, certain types of competition or bad competition, good competition, when you're not that type of caliber player, that might be detrimental to your game or to, uh, you know, to the game in general. And I think that's where we're getting the mixed messages of everybody thinks they're an AAU player. Or yeah. every parent thinks they play, but that's not actually the case. Right. So I think I think it's a fifty-fifty. I think it it kind of depends on the kid, the area, you know, the ultimate goal, and you know what's being accomplished. Gotcha. Well, it, it certainly served its purpose for you. You talk about a lot of late interest in the recruiting process. What ended up making Iowa the right place for you? Um, it was a variety of things. I mean, it was a feel. It was a um, you know, I got to know them better. They were obviously closer mm. than all the team. They were, you know, 45 minutes away, hour away from my hometown. 
they got it in early. Uh, you know, I went up to a lot of games. Um, you know, Bruce Pearl, which is the coach at Auburn, used to be at Tennessee and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was my assistant at Iowa who recruited oh, me. Wow. And he was an active recruiter, you know, so he understood what it, what it took uh, to recruit. And so uh, he basically recruited me till you know, in the in the beginning and in the end. And you know, I had a good rapport with with Bruce, and I you know I've talked with him over the years, even as a former pro and retired pro. So um, I think sometimes it's the assistant coaches or the recruiter that also gets in with the kids. Mm-hmm. So you were playing for Tom Davis at that point. What was that experience like? Uh, very unique. Um, he was one of the forefathers of the modern-day press, fast break. Um, ran a free-flowing five-cutter system. People call it flex or passing game or cutters. Um, you know, he ran that system. He had a free-flowing sub-system where players sub. You know, he played eight, nine, ten, eleven guys. Uh, and, you know, he did some unique things in practice and games where it, it kind of made it made it advantageous to play for him. Sure. That freshman year, yeah. you get about you know 16 minutes a game, and you definitely produced in those minutes, but never really found a consistent place in the rotation. What was that freshman year like for you? Well, I was actually a redshirt freshman. So mm-hmm. my first year, I didn't play. I didn't. I was redshirted. Uh, that was a year with B.J. Armstrong, Roy Marble, Eddie Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was a great team, and I, didn't, I wasn't good enough to get on the floor. Sure on that team. Uh, and so then my redshirt freshman year, we were, we were kind of like, you know, we weren't good that year. We were 12 and 14, I think, or something like that. So I think that was a case that, uh, coach didn't know who, who to play. Did he want to go young? Did he go with the seniors? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was still learning the game, you know, so, you know, a year off from playing competitively, I hadn't played competitively for two, for two years. So I was still learning the game. I didn't take it serious at that time. I think if I would have took it more serious, I would have probably played more. Uh, you know, so it was, a, you know, I just finally had to grow up and kind of think basketball was going to be, you know, this thing to help me out. And so that's what I had to kind of do. Yeah, so big jump as a sophomore. Minutes almost double. Averages up to 16.3 points, 6.7 rebounds, 3.3 blocks a night. You've got to be feeling great after this sophomore season. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I could play. I like, feel like I, you know, you know, but I took the game more seriously. I worked out more. You know, I took my diet and, you know, partying on campus seriously. Took my academics more seriously. Uh, basically took it as a student athlete. Like, yeah. now I'm a student athlete who's contributing in the Big Ten, and this is what I came, you know, to play for, you know. So I think sometimes players have to grow up. And I had to grow up. I definitely had to grow up. And so uh, that's basically what happened. Another big jump. Grew up. <laughs> Absolutely. Another big jump as a junior, 19.578 and just a, a crazy four blocks a game. How much consideration, if any, did you give for leaving for the NBA at that point? Well, uh, uh, it's kind of weird. You know, sometimes I talk about that, but really uh, that wasn't the thing to do. Mm. At the time, uh, even though it was starting to happen, but it was happening because of negative reasons. So it would, 
it's because uh, players would flunk out mm-hmm. or they get arrested or they get in trouble or they were academically ineligible. So I think a year after that, well, no, 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 that would have been my, yeah, because it would have been my true senior year if I was a senior. So if you look at that year, we had five players from our high school class mm. that went pro. And those were uh, Gerard Mustaf, Cesar Portillo, Sean Kemp, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and Billy Owens. Mm-hmm. So five of those guys from my high school class went pro. So obviously some other guys could have, but it was just a situation where a lot of those guys had some negative things. I think everybody except maybe Billy Owens had uh, some negative things happen. Yeah. But all those guys were, you know, had some issues. And so that, that just wasn't the thing to do at the time. I mean, Tyler's life was fun. Yes. Um, you know, people just didn't think about doing it. And so it just wasn't the thing to do. Gotcha. That, uh, you're right, that, that 92 NBA draft, you're talking about big men at the top like, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, Alonzo Mourning, Christian Leitner, uh, Lafonso Ellis, Tom Gugliotta, Clarence Weatherspoon, and so on. You know, did that play any part at all that, you know, maybe wait those guys out for a year? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, and that was one of the things, too, is, is to wait those guys out. You know, because, you know, and you, you can never be sure because my next year, it was still dominated by underclassmen. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you look at the top lottery picks my year, it was, you know, Chris Weber, Penny Hardaway, Rodney Rogers. I think J.R. Ryder might have been the only senior. Uh, Alan Houston might have been a junior. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lindsey Hunter might have been a senior. Hurley was but, in there. You know, he was a senior. Who was that? Bobby Hurley. Yeah, Bobby Hurley was a senior. So, I mean, there was only a few seniors, but, you know, you, you could never predict it, you know. But but that was, you know, the best case for me was to wait a year. And, you know, I slid a little bit, but that's more because of the underclassmen. Yeah, AC, I don't like talking about that 1993 NBA draft as a 76ers fan because uh, – you know that that was Sean for us, and while uh, while that was an interesting selection, passing over the the pennies and the Jamal Mashburns, that hurts me to this day. Yeah, 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 yeah. What uh, did what were you familiar with uh, Bradley at that point anywhere? He's kind of this mystery guy who shows up from BYU no, after a two years. He just kind of came out of the. He just came out of the blue, out of nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, and. You know, he was on a mission uh, that whole year, so nobody knew him or saw him. He wasn't playing basketball. And I think while he was on the mission, I think he grew maybe two or three inches or something mm. crazy like that. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, you know, no, he hadn't played in a year or two, so it was kind of one of those things. And he had David Falk as an agent. Mm-hmm. And David Falk was like, hey, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to go you know, you're going to go and be a pro. And that's what happened. He got number two, you know, draft money. Yeah. So. He did. And uh, while it was yeah. fun to have Sean Bradley and Minute Bowl on the roster together, I would have preferred to have those <laughs> those nine years of Penny Hardaway instead. Yeah, a lot of guys could have but, played on that team. So yeah. what range were you expecting to go in? Did you, Was there anything you had in your head going into that draft? 
Oh, yeah. I was projected lottery all year long, even my NCAA mm. uh, insurance policy uh, had that. Uh, so I wasn't, I didn't think I was going to go anywhere, anywhere less than 11, to be honest with you. And I didn't work out for any teams over 11. Oh, so interesting. Washington wanted me to work out and they ended up taking Rex Chapman. So I probably should have worked out with them. I know Boston and Charlotte called me late, but I wasn't going to work out for them because I wasn't, I wasn't projected, you know, to, to work out at that late. So I didn't work out that anybody anybody after eleven I didn't work out. Sure. I think was... I think Atlanta mm-hmm. I think Atlanta was probably my lowest and that was under fifteen. I think they were Doug Edwards at fifteen. Yeah. Is there one team that like you're you're still surprised they didn't take you? Yeah, I mean I thought I thought Atlanta, I thought for sure there's no way I'm gonna not go to Atlanta. Okay. For sure. Right. Um, I thought Atlanta was was for sure, and I thought um, I thought Washington would have took me, mm-hmm. and I thought uh, I thought for sure Charlotte or um, you know to be a backup center to Zoe mm-hmm. at Charlotte or uh, for sure like Utah at eighteen like Luther Wright like I knew I was a better player than Luther Wright yeah uh, you know. Safe to so, say, but right. the NBA so, draft is a very weird thing. Yeah, it's, I mean it's like any draft. You don't know. I mean, you, you look at you look at Carson Wentz, right? Nobody thought he could play, right? I like that. That's a good reference. Very well done, sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we we uh, gave up quite a bit to go up and get him. So I'd like to think that we had the foresight to think that this guy can play in the NFL, but certainly well behind Jared Goff that year. But we're not here to talk about the NFL draft. Right. We're, we're here to talk about right. you. You end up being the number 19 pick by the Boston Celtics. Are you relieved at this point? Are you frustrated? What's going through your head? Well, I think relief is the big thing. And, and actually, after 15, you know, my dad called it. We were at the draft table, and he was like, hey, you're going to Boston. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Boston. I said, oh, they're at 19. Yeah. I said, please, I hope we're not going to Boston. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yes, you're going to Boston. And so it went from 16, 17, 18, and then Boston came. And so at that time, I mean, it's kind of like mixed messages. You're 19, but you finally get picked. Yeah. And then, and then you're going to a historic place. And so in retrospect, it was a great move. Absolutely. Uh, because... It, it taught me a lot about being a professional. I got to be around professionals. It taught me a lot about the game. And at the end of the day, I can always say I played for the Boston Celtics, and not a lot of people can say that. that. That's absolutely true. And do you think that – do you really get that sense of, you know, once a Celtic, always a Celtic? I think it was – Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I get newsletters to this day from <laughs> them. You know, we get – correspondence you know when we see each other you know i see bill russell bill russell talks to me mm-hmm. uh, you know i still i'm i'm still in touch with greg Miner, who was my rookie uh my second year in the nba so yeah i you know i'm very proud to have been a celtic and you know i watch i watch i don't follow the Celtics intently but i you know i watch them and follow and root for them somewhat but it's always fun to hear the nostalgia yeah, and 
and you know and understand the history behind the game and what they did for the game and uh and you know at the end of the day I'm always known as AC Earl who got drafted by the Celtics not AC Earl played four years in the NBA yeah, absolutely. And do you think it's fair to say that, you know, once the moment you become a Celtic, you are 100% in the Boston Celtics fraternity? Because, you know, I had I had Grant Long on the show and he talks about, you know, I, he played with Danny Ainge for a minute. And, you know, if he calls Danny, Danny will pick up the phone right now because that's just what Celtics do for each other. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's like, you know, there's little clicks and niches in that. Um you know, and that, you know, I'm part of a one click and some of the other guys are part of those clicks. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's more prominent than some of the other teams. Like for instance, I don't think I'm in any contact. Well, I, I talked to Tracy Murray hmm. and Sharon Wright from the Raptors, but it's more on a fun catch up type of relationship, not really serious things. Sharon and Wright, then I don't, another 76er. And then I don't yeah, and I don't talk to anybody from uh, the Bucks. Gotcha. So yeah, so that, so that, that Celtic era really, really, uh, you know, really is prominent. Yeah, you're right. That is very. It's very cool to say that you can be that you were part of that organization. And what's it? What was it like for you walking into that facility for the first time after the draft? And you know, like. I'm on this team with guys like D Brown and Sherman Douglas. And, you know, you have to mention the absolute legend that is Robert Parrish. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, like for instance, I read about the books. I had a buddy who worked at a bookstore when I was in college. Uh, and so he gave me all these books. And so I read about, you know, Celtic legacy. I read mm -hmm. Bill Russell's book and I read Mel Carr's book and, you know, so I read a lot of guys about, I read a lot of things about the facility. So to like to show up at Merrimack Drive and walk through the halls where Red Arback and see his office mm -hmm. and, you know, know that these were the stars walked here and then walk the garden, shoot around in the garden. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's an unreal experience. I can imagine. I will say, uh, my favorite basketball player of all time is is Bobby uh, is Bob Cousy, and I just I don't think that I think that he's kind of been lost in history a little bit with just how incredible he was and how how much of an impact he had on the professional game. I will say Cousy is my that Cousy is my dream guest. If I could have any one person, you know, it, it's not Jordan, it's not Magic, although they're both welcome if they'd like to come on the show, but it would be Bob Cousy. Yeah, he was the he was the radio guy. Him and Heinsohn, or TV. They were TV. Him and Heinsohn. Yeah. When I was there, so yeah. it was fun to listen to them and interact with them. You know. So uh, seventy-four games, eight starts that rookie year. How'd you feel that that went for you? Um, I thought it went okay. Um, there's a couple unique things that kind of lay in my mind. So one. Uh, I, I had 16 points five times that year. Okay. And so in my first game, I had, I had 16 points. And so that was against the Knicks. And so I was kind of like, okay, I can play at this level. Mm -hmm. I know how to score. I know how to get to the free throw line. Um, I know strengths and weaknesses of myself. I know strengths and weaknesses of other centers. Um, it's not hard, but I think at times Boston made it harder 
than what it needed to be. And, and, and I say this because I know a lot of guys who were playing at other teams who were having similar success or more, and they were just out there playing. Guys mm-hmm. just let them play. You know, C. Webb, Penny Hardaway, Roddy Rogers, you know, J.R., Chris Mills. You know, I'm just looking at guys like, wow, these guys are getting all these minutes a game. These guys aren't better than me offensively or defensively, but the issue is they're just letting them play. Mm-hmm. And I think my first year, they kind of stifled me a little bit. And they tried to change my game, and they tried to hold me back. And and I was just like, okay. Um, you know, I kind of see where this is going. And then, obviously, my second year, they drafted Aaron Montrose. Mm-hmm. You know, and I go from, you know, to a really diminished role. And so I was just like, I think, you know, I knew I could do more. And I see that today because there's players that I see who their first round draft picks and they haven't scored, they don't score 16 points or they don't score in double digits for like a whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one guy from Cleveland who they picked first, uh, Anthony. Anthony Bennett. Anthony Bennett. I mean, he didn't get the double digits to like, I don't think he scored like his first five games in the NBA. <laughs> and then like Fab Mello, I remember he didn't score his 16. He didn't score his 16th point in the NBA till January. Mm-hmm. And he was picked 18 like a few years back. So, I mean, I just look at it like, you know, I could have, I could have had a chance to do better. Uh, and I was a better player than I was. And that kind of resounded when I was with Toronto. You know, because I had more scoring games, a higher scoring games, and more minutes, and that's when, that's when the coaches all kind of hodgepodge everybody together, and we're like, okay, what do you do? If you if you can do this, then go out and do it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that's kind of I kind of look at. It. I just looked like I was kind of stifled a bit. Yeah, you did see a pretty big step backwards that second year in Boston, both in you know in games played and minutes, and you know, and obviously the points and all of that. You talk about being, you know being stifled a little bit, and that's that's fair. But what do you int- what do you attribute that to? Why do you think that they made that decision? Well, that's kind of a Celtic way at the time. They, you know, they never until like for instance, like you look at a few years back. So Reggie Lewis came; he was mm-hmm. a first round draft pick. You know, they played him behind Bird. Yeah. You know, uh, and they didn't let him play till Bird got hurt. And then, you know, another guy who played at Iowa, Kevin Gamble. Mm-hmm. You know, Kevin Gamble didn't play a lot until Bird, and then he was coming back up to Reggie, and then they moved him to the two so he could play. But, you know, they've always been team first, not let the player do too much, do it in the team oriented. You know, they didn't really get to the player – being more individual until probably a couple of years after I left. Right. Uh, when they, when they started getting more scores and people with more individuality, uh, you know, when they started going to like, they went to like Todd day and they went to, they went to some guys who to me didn't fit the Celtic mold of a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they kind of, you know, then they went to the other era where they rebuilt it with the young guys. Then they kind of went to the Antoine Walker era. And, uh, you know, because, you know, they didn't even like Chauncey Billups. Yeah. It's crazy. You know? So, I mean, they had they had some things, I think, where they, 
they were still trying to go in the old Celtic mode. And I, I think they didn't really understand that until later on. So yeah. you mentioned Reggie Lewis. Let's in another world where, you know, obviously what happens doesn't happen and maybe Reggie's drafted by another team, how good is he as a pro? Well, I never played with Reggie. Mm-hmm. So I mean I remember watching him uh uh I never, I never, I just, I remember watching him yeah. and then I remember, um, you know, when I went out there for my rookie year, he was around in the summertime, you know, so he used to work out with us, but then he died like before the season started. Yeah. So I never got a chance to play with him. I just remember watching him on TV and I remember him playing at Northeastern. Uh, cause I think he led the nation in scoring, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, an absolute an absolute tragedy for an organization that's had more than its share of absolute tragedy. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. Um, are you at all surprised by, you know, you talk about the Celtic way, and it seems to me this modern-day Celtics team is not the Celtics way. Like a guy like Kyrie Irving, who is, you know, an ISO guard, one who wants to look for his own shot, He that was not a guy who would be a Celtic point guard 20 years ago. Oh, no, no. And, um, you know, and you got to kind of give, you know, Danny some credit. Danny often talks about Red used to tell them that he should have traded players away earlier, mm-hmm. but he just couldn't do it because he loved them. He said he could have, he should have traded McKay away, should have traded Age away earlier, should have traded Chief away earlier, and he couldn't do it, couldn't bring himself to do it. Uh, and I think Danny's embraced that to do anything for the team and he's embraced the new basketball. Uh, and you know, it's just, you know, the game is changing. The game is evolving. It's a point guard league now, mm-hmm. point guards or scoring guards, lead guards, you know, handle the ball, distribute if they want to, but it's a score first league, you know? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. What did you think of the, that summer, because obviously they had a drastic shakeup in terms of their starting lineup, go to the Eastern Conference Finals last year and only bring one player back. You know, good decisions, bad decisions. Did you agree with it? Where was, where'd you stand? You know, um, I think, you know, you can get in sports, you know, you see this all the time. Are you in this purgatory? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to be bad? Or can you be great? And I think um, some teams won't settle for purgatory you know they're just gonna they're gonna go for it all or they're gonna reboot uh and i I think it's a fine line i mean you know i I teach a sports class two sports classes at at iowa and we talk about the financial part Mm -hmm. you know a lot of owners would rather be in purgatory because you're making money you know if you go you go 42 and 45 you still make the playoffs you still get revenue you're making money, that's fine. I mean, fans aren't too enthused about it, but would you rather go 42 and 45 or would you rather go, you know, 12 and 60? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that that was kind of the criticism of, well, before the other much more significant criticisms, kind of the criticism of Donald Sterling with the Clippers all those years, that he was kind of content to be, you know, sneak into the playoffs every year and just pocket the money, whereas – you know, a team like my 76ers, they took a much more dramatic uh, take on how to rebuild. 
Right. I mean, and that's, like I said, that's the financial part of it, and that's the analytic part you see. So you see the financial model, Donald Sterling, and now you see the analytical model of Sam Hinkie saying, hey, if we just keep stacking draft picks sooner or later, we're going to get the transcendent player. The transcendent player comes along once every 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So if we can stack some draft picks, maybe we can get them, or maybe we'll get the transcendent player, you know. Do you think that either Ben or Joel fits that category? You know what? I think Ben probably more so than Joel. I only say that because of his 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 problem, his his you know injury problems. But mm-hmm. that kind of goes back to the to the AAU culture that these kids are playing more games, right? Uh, and so, I mean, you look at guys. People say all the time, "Well, how come Magic and?" Bird and Jordan and Barkley and Ewing and those guys never got hurt because they didn't play 60 games a year mm-hmm. ever since their third grade. Yeah. No, that makes a you lot know, of sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, my kids have played. You know, I got a freshman in college now. She's played 40, 50 extra games at least ever since she was in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. You know, and so these, these, you know, the old stars never did that. You know, I mean, you know, they might have played on the playground every day, but that's a little different, you know, than than playing three or four games a day or six games in a weekend. Right. You know, plus the travel, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I I think I think Ben Simmons has a chance. I think the problem is these kids aren't learning the game mm-hmm. at a higher rate. Uh, because they're just playing these AAU exhibitions and they're not being coached. I mean, anybody can coach an AAU. I mean, it's a li- it's getting more stringent now, but it used to be, you know, guys who had, you know, checkered pass could coach an AAU team. Guys who had prior convictions could coach an AAU team. Um, you know, it was just a guy in the neighborhood who might have grew up in the neighborhood. He didn't have any basketball training. Mm-hmm. So he didn't coach high school. So it's like these guys are learning from those guys. Um, so if you're not learning defensive principles, I mean, I remember an article a long time ago, Amari Stoudemire said, nobody taught me how to play man-to-man defense. <laughs> you know, and he, I think he went to six high schools in seven years or five high schools in six years or something like that. Yeah. So he was obviously not getting, or he was, he was you know, rebuking against discipline. And he just went to the coach who would listen to him where he wanted to do, you know. So I think a lot of these guys aren't getting the solid coaching, and that's what's hurting them from being these transcendent players. I mean, these guys have transcendent talent. I mean, you look at what you look at what Ball's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's you know he's setting records, breaking records that were never broken. Ben Simmons, you know, Joel Embiid, but still, there's something missing in their game, like. You know, a player who's 30 years old, like a like a LeBron James or Dwayne Wade, are just abusing those guys. Sure. You know, offensively and defensively because they because they understand the game. Right. But if those guys could, if those guys get one year of college coaching or two years of college coaching under Dean Smith or Shosesky or, you know, it'd be a different story. Yeah, I don't understand how guys who are clearly that good and clearly that advanced, especially with Ben and Lonzo, 
are allowed to shoot the ball like they shoot the ball because they, I mean, Lonzo made shots in college, not so much so far in the pros and Ben took one jump shot in college, I believe something crazy like that. How do you get that far and have that poor mechanics? Well, you never have to use your jump shot. So, I mean, look at LeBron. When he came in, his jump shot, he used to hitch it. Yeah. He used to pump it and hitch it. And they didn't tell me, if it wasn't for Chris Jett, who was my high school class, I played at Ohio State, if it wasn't for Chris Jett teaching him how to shoot, he probably wouldn't be able to shoot. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kobe, you know, he couldn't shoot when he first got in the league, but Eddie Jones taught him how to shoot, and some other guy, J.R. Ryder, and some other shooting coaches with the Lakers, but you know, these guys have so much talent and skill and athleticism uh, that they don't have to use those skills. Or it's easy to shoot against a guy who you know is not going to block your shot or you're wide open or you're up 40 points a game. Yeah. You know, it's easy to shoot in that in that realm, you know. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. So it's different. It's just different, different era. All right, so 95 comes around. You're picked by the Raptors in the expansion draft. How are you feeling about this? Are you, are you sad to leave Boston or kind of excited for the opportunity? It's probably 50-50, you know, because I was looking at some of the guys that were, were on the expansion draft with me, and I knew some of those guys. You know, Eddie Pinckney, I played in Boston. Um, you know, BJ was originally drafted, but he, he negotiated a buyout or trade out. Mm-hmm. Victor Alexander from Iowa State I knew. Um couple other guys. B.J. Tyler was my class. Uh, there was a couple other guys that I knew and was kind of close with. I think, yeah, Tracy Murray came in as a free agent. Um, so I was like, okay, um, you know, it's a new start for me. I'm, I'm going in doing what I wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a new start. But, you know, it's, you know, you feel bad being, like, discarded. Yes. And, you know, I never got actual call from ML Carr. You know, he was running the team. Oh, wow. I called him and said, hey, I want to go to the uh, to the Pete Newell big man camp, you know, get better. And he said, okay, I'll get back to you. Because back then, like, the teams paid for it. Mm. So, he, you know, unless you were in college, then your parents paid for it, obviously. But uh, so I said, yeah, I want to go to the Pete Newell big man camp. And he goes, okay, I'll get back to you. And I never heard back. And, Next thing I know, I was on the expansion draft. Wow. That, uh, that's not the Celtic way. No. And, and ML Carr is kind of 50-50. I mean, he was – I know him because he used to hang around when he was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he never had an active role. I think he was a community person or something with the team. Uh, and so he didn't really have an active role. But he was always cool to me. Uh, but then when he got – to be the the uh, the GM or whatever things change a little bit, but uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, but that's just a you know that's just that's just the business part. I mean, when I got traded in Toronto, Isaiah never called me either. Jesus. And and I knew Isaiah, you know, from years back, and um, you know, so Isaiah never called me on that one either. So I mean, that's just the business. I mean, 
you know, it is what it is. How do you reconcile with that? Because, you know, it's easy to look back and, and sort of have that perspective after time, you know, 10, 15 years later. But Yeah, it, I mean, like, for instance, um, probably one of the worst coaches I ever played for that I hated, like, to a T, and I didn't really learn from, and I didn't respect him as a coach. Well, I respect him as a coach. I didn't respect him as a person. was probably Chris Ford. Okay. And, um, and... So, for instance, I played with him in Boston. Didn't go well. And so, you know, he had a health issue in Boston where he had to do some treatment. And um, so then later on, he took time off. He comes back healthy, and he coaches at Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. I went to Toronto, and uh, I, I, was, I didn't want to talk to him, and I didn't want to see him, and I, was, I knew I was going to see him or – something and there it goes in the i walk down the hallway he walks down the hallway we're alone and he goes hey ac and i go hey how you doing and, and we kind of stop a little bit and i go hey how's your health are you better and he goes yeah i really appreciate you asking now i really didn't care yeah. to be honest <laughs> but but i was doing it to be nice uh -huh. and i knew he went through some stuff and a week later he trades for me oh and so here we go again. So first week or two, he gave me a chance to play. And after that, buried me on the bench again. Do you, uh, do, so, do you ever wonder if you're not nice to him in that moment? And if you don't say hello, I, does he still trade for correct. you? Correct. I wonder that all the time. And so it's funny. So, you know, so they end up buying me out or they end up cutting me because they wanted my salary spot. Mm -hmm. And years later, I coached in the CBA. So that was 95. No, that was 97. So 2005 or 6, I coached in the CBA, and we were, our staff was invited to the All-Star game because we were the East leading leaders. Okay. And he's a scout for, he's a scout for either Philly or Boston or the Clippers. I can't remember. And he calls me over to these scouting up players. And we talk, and he sits there, and he talks, and he tells me in front of Joe Wolf, because I played with Joe in Milwaukee. And he goes, oh, sit down. So we're talking, we're yakking up, and he goes, you know what, AC, you are the smartest basketball player I ever coached. And he goes, you respected the game like nobody else. He said, you know history, you know players. He said, you knew times, you knew situations. He goes, I still remember that about you. He goes, I was fun to coach you. So he obviously had let everything go into the rug, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's strange. What was your problem with him? What was it that you didn't like about him at the time? Well, he just he always yelled at me. He always cursed. He was never positive. He never taught me anything. He just, it was just hard to, uh, it was just hard to play for. Like, he just was like, go out there and win. Like, I was like, okay, what are we doing for this? Or what are we doing for that? You know, I was a very cerebral player. And it was just, he was just hard to play for. And I mean, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I had to grow up too. I mean, it's not all on him. I mean, you know, I was baby probably in college a little bit. And I was a star player and I come from Iowa and now I'm in Boston. So, I mean, things are a little different. And, uh, and you know, I was a number one draft pick. And so they always gave the number one draft. Like I had to do all kind of stuff that none of my other rookie friends were doing. I mean, I was, <laughs> my fines were double. 
I had to be there 15 minutes early for everything. I had to count on the bus. I had to get the balls out. I had to do all this other stuff. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they took, you know, they took the rookie role very seriously. So you're saying Weber wasn't going to get people donuts? No. He, <laughs> I think he'd have to pay for it every now and then. But, I mean, he wasn't doing half the stuff that a lot of guys were doing and I was doing. That last year with Milwaukee, you know, Ford's the coach, but Mike Dunleavy is in that front office. How much power did Dunleavy have? He had a lot of power. He, I mean, I knew Dunleavy because he worked me out and when I was in, for, for Milwaukee when they took Vin Baker. And, uh, and he always told me, he, well, he actually told me, he actually worked out with me, and then he drove me to the airport and he goes, you know what, you had a great workout. And we need a center. Yeah. But he said Ben Baker's skill set is very good. We've never seen anything. I mean, he was a stretch four before the stretch four. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing that he didn't do was shoot free throw. I mean, shoot threes. That's the only thing he didn't do. But if he had a shot threes, he'd probably been a perennial all-star, which, I mean, he was an all-star a few years. But, uh, so, yeah, Ben was, I mean, so, you know, they fell in love with Ben. Uh, I mean, he could handle the ball. He could do a lot of things, you know. So, um, so yeah, so he took Ben. So when I was there, he was like, hey, we'd love to have you back. We know you can do some things. So they had me play in the summer league. They said, hey, why don't you play in the summer league and lead our team? And I think I led the team in scoring and rebounding in blocks in the summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then he came back and said, well, I'm not so sure we want you. And then he left, and then that's when Bob came. And then Bob just didn't give me a chance. Gotcha. So after you're released by uh, by Milwaukee, you know, I imagine you had more than your share of offers to play internationally, but you pass on that to stay in the CBA. Is that a no, move? No, 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 no. Actually, actually, Bob. Actually, this is what happened. So okay. Milwaukee. So Bob, I forget his last name, like Weinhauer, Winhauer, or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he cuts me the last day before cuts. Yeah. He cuts me like. Like, almost this day, like, I, I, I remember it was, like, the 28th or 29th of October because the rosters had to be set on, like, Halloween. Mm-hmm. And he cuts me and says, you know, we got to cut you, but here's the deal. We're going to send you to Greece because we sent Benoit Benjamin over, and he's not doing well. We got to deal with this Greek team. And he goes, well, I feel bad for you, but I'm going to set you up to make more money. So he sends me over to Greece. So I took the deal because I trusted him. Mm-hmm. So it didn't work out well. Then from there, another agent sends me to Spain. Doesn't work out well. Then they send me to Germany. So I get cut by three teams in a month. Well, four teams in a month. So here I am, 28 years old, arguably the best shape of my life. A year before, I had 40 points against you know the Celtics. And now I get cut by four teams. And so I'm kind of like pondering my future. So then I, my agent said, just play in the CBA and maybe something will happen. So that's why I played, started playing in the CBA. Interesting. Okay, so your, uh, your Wikipedia page has none of that. And uh, that tends to, be the, uh, has, tends to be the case a little bit with some of the, the international play. But that, that's, uh, that, that's very, very interesting. Were, do you have hard feelings about, you know, 
I'm sending you to Greece, and then you have to experience all of this, rather, you know, in an attempt to, you know, get back well, in the I mean, NBA. It taught me. It taught me a lot of character. I mean, I really, like, I was really kind of feeling like, do I stop playing basketball? Do I go in the work world? Like, yeah. what do I do? Uh, am I done? You know, what am I doing? I mean, I was just, you know, I really was in a not a bad place, but I was just in a place where I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I was, I really hated the NBA at the time. I really, so I gave away all my NBA gear to people. So, and I didn't watch NBA at all. So I would come home, like if I was on the break or if I was playing in the CBA, I never watched any NBA at all. Hmm. Uh, I just, you know, I'd watch like Discovery Channel or A&E or something like that, but uh, and I, I didn't watch sports at all. I didn't watch Super Bowl. Like, I don't know who won the Super Bowl. I don't know who <laughs> won the World Series, who won the title for like five years. I didn't watch any sports. I was just so disenchanted with sports in general. And yeah, that's, so, that's uh, fair. yeah, so I didn't get back really into playing competitively and really taking it more seriously than when I got, you know, when I got to France, mm. you know. So that's when I played for PSG and I played for, uh, I played for Boja, who's the coach who was Dino Raja and Kukoc's coach, and okay. all those guys, Petro's coach, overseas. So he was a famous coach. And then I played with the guy on that team from Serbia who played with those guys, like on the Olympic team. Mm. All right. So, so, all right. So I'm trying to trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong here in terms of the the, the Wikipedia listing. So it's you go to Paris, and then it's sort of. Australia, China, back to Australia, and you're like you say, you're a guy in your mid to late twenties. Is I'm I'm guessing from what you're saying, this is not you enjoying your chance to explore the world. You're it seems like you were frustrated that you never got that opportunity to settle down anywhere. Well, at that time, I'm just chasing the dollar. At that time, yeah, you're chasing the dollar and chasing the best situation. So, like, I end up playing in China because it was a good situation and they were giving me a chance to play. Cause I, I, cause you can't, you can't keep going getting cut by teams. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, then the, then the word gets out, you can't play or you got a drug problem or you're injured. So, you know, you could, you could tell a team like, Oh, they didn't give me a chance, but they're like, okay, either does drugs or he's hurt. Mm-hmm. Either one of the two. So okay. I had to find a place where I could get some stats and play and be stable. So that's why I ended up playing in Australia uh, and playing in China, probably markets at that time uh, an NBA player wouldn't play in. But I had to, like, you know, get a reputation, get a positive reputation. So you're rebuilding your resume in a way. Yeah, of course. Totally. Interesting. All right, so after that, I mean, this doesn't continue. There's a lot of here, there, the next place, Australia, Turkey, Russia, Turkey, Poland, Austria, Australia, back to Austria, Montenegro, Kosovo. Uh, and the final stop, I could not find anything about this, and I'm not 100% sure it's a real place, but your final stop is listed as uh, playing for the Waterloo Revolution. What is that? No, I never play. I think uh, they wanted me to be a, a coach uh, okay. a coach or a, uh, a GM or something like that. So okay. Now, my final stop was, uh, Kosovo, I won a championship in MVP. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of the coaches in Kosovo at the time, he was Serbian or Croatian. He left Pristina to go back to Croatia to run a team. 
and he saw how good I played. So he wanted me to come play for that team. And he wanted me to come early. Normally at that time, I came like a month before the season. I didn't do like August, September. Gotcha. I would come like October. And so he's like, no, I'll pay you double if you come early. You know, we need the players there. So I I went there reluctantly because I wasn't really in shape yet. He goes, oh, you can get shape, you can get in shape here and we'll get paid to play. So I, that's And that's where I tore my Achilles. I tore my Achilles after seven days. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that was and, my last. Team, that was my last team in Croatia. It, it, so at that point, are you just thinking, "All right, I'm ready to put my days as a pro basketball player behind me"? Yeah, I was pretty much mentally done. Um, you know, at that time, I was just still following the money, and it was a good deal. My kids were getting older. Uh, I still had a couple young ones, toddlers, mm-hmm. and then. Um, so I came home with rehab, and, you know, that's kind of where I taught my one who was at college how to play basketball because I'd go to the gym and rehab, and I'd take her along, and I'd pass with her and teach her how to dribble. So it was kind of like a, you know, a blessing in disguise where that's how I taught her the game. Sure, absolutely. And, and that's how I started, getting, I started getting more into the home routine, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, going to church on Sundays and picking up the kids and doing this. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not going back. Yeah. So then the offers I was getting was like really low because people didn't know if I was, if I was uh, healthy or not. So I knew I would have to do a couple of low ball jobs for a year or two to play back at that level. And it wasn't worth it, you know, yeah, nice being back home, nice having the consistency. And it's nice that everyone speaks English. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just nice being, you know, you're finally home. You're finally in the mix. You're finally, you know, people are like, hey, where you been for the last <laughs> You know, I know you were here. I know you were there. And, uh, so, it's, you know, it was just, it was that time, you know, and I was ready to go into coaching or something, and that's kind of what I did. So you've played for quite a few teams internationally. What was the best experience? What was the worst experience with any of the franchises? Well, they all have their positives. I'd say Australia was one of my tops. Uh, you know, you, you, I had negative experiences in Russia, negative experiences in Poland, you know, Greece. I mean, it's just kind of like the good along with the bad. I mean, you're not going to have a hundred percent you know there were teams that we won with and did well with that they still owe us money you know yes so it's just you know you kind of take it for what it's worth i mean it's never going to be the nba you know uh you're you're trying to get as much money as you can and do your best while you're there and you know represent you know, your country and your people, you know, and that, that helped me write, write my overseas book, but mm-hmm. how to play overseas book. And that's basically based on that whole experience. Right. How difficult, I've heard horror stories about this. How difficult is it to get some of those teams to actually pay you and pay you on time? Well, I mean, there's little tricks that you could do uh, that we learned that I learned. And one was getting as much money as you can up front. Sure. Um, and then, getting uh 
getting your payments wired to a bank account right away or just getting it in cash. So, I mean, there's different things that you could do that I learned over the years to alleviate the risk. Uh, because, you know, it's all, it's all on the risk. It's all on the risk. I mean, if they can get away without paying you, they're going to do it. You know? yeah. uh, you... There's only a couple teams that I played for that paid me all my money. <laughs> that's, uh, that's incredible. So you've, uh, you've written a handful of books. What made you want to go into, you know, being a author? Well, I had well, the overseas book was kind of like my my little manifesto rules. I would have ten or I'd have ten rules before I went overseas every year. Okay, uh, and they were like, you know, make sure I got my wire instructions, make sure I got my passport renewed, make sure I talked to my agent about what's going on. I just they're just little things, you know. Find out what about the post office. Understand about the car. All these things were like on my checklist, mm-hmm. you know. Like you don't just pop up overseas. Like, okay, where's my car? You know, you want to have yeah. all that laid out before. So it it became like this little manifesto. And then whenever I was overseas, some other players would come up and talk to me about these things. Like, hey man, so what do you do about the car? Or how do you get your money back overseas? Or how do you pay your taxes? Like. All these young guys, the guys who just played, didn't have a lot of experience. They didn't know all this, so I was I was kind of like the like the person where people came to me on these things. Gotcha. And you're talking and about became, uh, how to play overseas. Thirty-one rules every player must right, know. So it became, right. So it became it was it was ten, and then it became thirty-one. And then there was a player who played at Iowa after me, Matt Gates. Uh, he, I think he's in. He's in uh, he's in Turkey now, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was, his first year was in Ukraine, and his dad called me. He's like, "Hey, what about Ukraine? I heard you played in Russia." And so I told him some of these things that they should work, they should do before they go over. He goes, "Oh man, you should write a book on this." Mm-hmm. And I go, "You know what? You're right." So I mean, I had the idea in my mind, and I started chipping away at it, but I just didn't put, you know finger to computer pin to pad so then after that that's when i started writing it and i believe you had a book come out relatively recently yeah i just did uh basketball main ingredients part one uh basketball terms okay so it's all the terms and things that kids and parents should know about basketball gotcha where can where can people find that oh it's all amazon it's all amazon itunes barnes and noble Google Play Store. Okay. Uh, it's all that. Gotcha. Yeah, all right. All well, I've that. I've uh, taken up a lot of your time, so let's let's wrap this up with the way I like to wrap up every episode. Quick little game of word association. Let me get the the first thing that comes to your mind when I mention these names. Doesn't have to be one word or anything like that. Just first thoughts with uh, some guys you've played with. And let's let's start with D Brown. Uh, selfish. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. I like where I like starting like that. Let's go with Sherman Douglas. Uh, very cerebral. Rick Fox. Uh, Rick Fox. Uh, <laughs> Carolina pedigree. Let me ask you, Rick Fox. He comes off sometimes not great with uh, you know his his attitude and his his fondness of Rick Fox. Is there any truth to that? 
Well, he's, I mean, he's a diva. He, I mean, probably diva. Probably diva would be the word. How diva. about a, I'm guessing Xavier McDaniel is not a diva. No, Xavier McDaniel is uh, a junkyard dog. How about the, how about the chief, Mr. Parrish? Distinguished. Yeah. Distinguished gentleman. Do you know Raja? Uh, Dino, a little rough around the edges, little rough, but that's, you know, but that's his culture. And, and see, he set me up, knowing him and getting the respect of him, mm-hmm. he set me up to play with a lot of Serbians, Croatians, former Yugoslavians all my life because all those guys knew him. Sure. And he spoke, he spoke very highly of me. So, yeah, a little rough around the edges, but, you know, great guy. About good old never nervous Purvis. Oh, too cool, too cool. <laughs> uh, Eric Montross. Uh, country boy. You've uh, you've played with some great basketball players. How about that that Dominique Wilkins? Uh, traveling circus. Explain. Oh, he was just he was. A, I mean, that's the first superstar I ever played with. So. I mean, you know, D was a star, Chief was a star. I mean, those guys were stars, but, you know, he was a superstar. Like, mm-hmm. it's a mob of people everywhere we went. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. Traveling circus. Yeah. How about uh, Damon Stoudemire? Uh, just cool cat. Just, you know, another, another cool cat. Just uh, underachiever, but... Cool cat, played with a chip on his shoulder. Why do you say underachiever? Well, he was little, and he wasn't expected to. I mean, he wasn't expected to have rookie of the year. Oh no! Yeah, so no. he really. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, overachiever. I'm sorry, okay. over. Yeah, there you go. Gotcha. Yeah. Then... yeah, overachiever. Yeah. How about Doug Christie? Oh, uh, oh, Doug Christie. Uh, <laughs> um, he was another cool cat. Uh, and this is another cool cat. He's just too cool. He just everything was too cool. Sure. <laughs> he was too cool. Oh, this is this is a guy I would love to have on the show at some point. How about John Sally? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's a word to distinguish Sal. Sal is. What would you say with Sal? Sal. Uh, How about interesting? Oh, oh it's. Interesting is under. I mean, that's a that, that word does not do him justice. Uh, he, oh, okay, I, I take it back. Most interesting man in the world. Okay, I, I'm uh, yeah. I'm gonna push this forward and try and get Mr. Sally to appear on the show at some point. How about the Wizard, Walt Williams? Oh, the Wizard. Yeah, he's another cool cat. The Wizard's a cool cat. Yeah. I think yeah. you played with Marcus Camby his rookie year. What, what yeah, was a young Camby like? Oh, yeah, Campbell Roughneck, hip-hop Roughneck. All right. Now, and, roughneck. and you had the, the big three in Milwaukee, Mr. Mr. Ray Allen? Yep, he was, Ray, Ray was a rookie. So Ray was just, he was just a timid cat at that time, just learning the game and just learning how to play and prepare himself. I knew he was going to be great because he had to practice every hour. Mm. And I, we talked about him a little early, but how about Vin? Oh, Ben, Ben was very skilled. Probably one of the most skilled big men I've ever seen in my life. 
and uh, I have to finish up here with the big dog because uh, you know asking oh, for asking for a hundred million dollars. Big dog was a scoring machine, man. Why? Scoring. Why didn't he have a better pro career? Um, you know what? I think his he he's one of those guys that I think if you studied him and exercise science, mm-hmm. he didn't have a good body. Mm. Like he didn't have a good vertical. He wasn't strong. He was not athletic. Um, he just, it just didn't, he, his body was not that of an NBA player, but his skill set was an NBA player. He, he probably had a throwback eighties game. Like if he played in the eighties, okay, seventies and eighties, he'd be a better player. Maybe some, uh, Connie Hawkins, if he plays 20 years before that. No, but I mean, Connie was very athletic. I mean, you know, you know, uh, Connie played for the Globetrotters. Mm. So, um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put him that. I would put him more, maybe Elgin Baylorish. Oh, that's interesting. You know, score. That's interesting. Elgin Baylor, maybe a little, uh, maybe a little, um, uh, like what's the other? Uh, there was Casey Jones and Sam Jones. Maybe Sam Jones's. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. All right, well, uh, is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here? No, no, I just, you know, if you, anybody wants some interesting books, I mean, I've, like I said, I've written four. Uh, the, the Basketball is Main Ingredient Part 2 has all the best players that I've played against and with. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I rank the best passers I've ever seen. I rank oh. the best rebounders I've ever seen. I rank the best coaches I've ever played with. So that's a nice book because it talks about pro and college. Very, very cool. All right, this has been yeah. this week's episode of Tales from the Association. My guest has been AC Earl. AC, thanks for coming on the show and talking to us. Yes, sounds good. S- send me a link to that or, or whatever so I could post it or retweet it or something.